Turn with me, if you would, over to uh, Matthew 8 for just a moment before we turn back to 1 Peter 5. Matthew chapter 8. As I was thinking about uh, these verses here in 1 Peter 5, it reminded me of this story of Jesus healing the centurion's servant. Matthew 8, verse 5, says, When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I am also a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. Verse 14, when Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and waited on him. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. I think when we read 1 Peter in the context of Peter's own experiences, and the things that he observed in the ministry of Jesus, it puts a different light on some of the things that we come across in the book of 1 Peter. Uh, For example, when we come to the first part of 1 Peter 5, uh, where it talks about, it addresses elders, and talks about shepherding the flock of God, I think that far too many times people have come to those verses and heard something like, take charge, you're important, you're the focus, even though they say the exact opposite. Why would you say that? Well, because if you forget what we read about in Matthew 8, this idea that those who serve under Jesus are serving under His authority, not their own, then we will have a false perspective on what Peter is talking about here. And if we take the part about being an elder and leading the church, separately from the part about humility, separately from the part about resisting the devil, then we don't see the unfolding that we see In Matthew 8, you have a centurion who comes humbly before Jesus, who understands the nature of authority, and then we see the ministry of Jesus. Immediately after that, Peter observes Jesus' power in casting out the demons who are under Satan. And so I think we see a very similar progression here in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 11, serve humbly under authority while resisting the devil. And so he addresses different groups of people in these verses. He starts out with pastors or elders. He says, shepherd the flock in verses 1 through 4. Pay attention, first of all, he says, to those who would lead God's people to your own elders. And this is really important because uh, being a pastor is not supposed to be a Lone Ranger kind of thing. And I think, unfortunately, for a lot of guys it is. Maybe because they feel like they have no one to talk to, maybe because they're pastoring a small church in a remote area, whatever it might be, it's easy to have this mindset that it's me and nobody else and I'm the only one. 
Elijah had this attitude uh, when he encounters the prophets of Baal, and God reminded him, you are not alone. And in this passage, Peter, I think, points those who would be pastors and elders to his own example. He says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder. Uh, Paul describes him in Galatians 2.9 as being one of these pillars of the church in Jerusalem. So Peter is not, as the Catholic Church would teach, the foundation of the church in uh, Jerusalem and all later churches, but he was certainly used by God as part of that foundation. That's clear in Ephesians 4 and other places, that the, the apostles were the, the foundation of the church, and that the message that they preached, along with their own example, provided this basis uh, that sets a pattern even for us today. So Peter was a fellow elder. So he says, as an elder, I exhort you who are coming after and, and others who are serving alongside, here's what you're supposed to do. And what are his credentials? It's not just that he was a fellow elder and a notable one and part of the foundation of the early church, but he had seen Jesus' ministry. He says that um, he's a witness of the sufferings of Christ. So Peter is an eyewitness of Christ's sufferings. We see this in uh, 2 Peter 1.16. We didn't follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to Him by the majestic glory. This is of my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. Peter saw Jesus when he's baptized. Peter sees Jesus when he is transfigured on the mountain. Peter sees Jesus all throughout his, his ministry. He sees him suffer. He sees him raised. He sees him ascend into heaven. Peter saw Jesus' ministry. And on that basis, he can say, here is what ministry for Jesus is supposed to be like. I've seen him and I've followed him firsthand. Peter also says that he has a common inheritance with the people that he's talking to. It says in verse 1, uh, a partaker also of the glory to be revealed. We said that in 1 Peter 1, verse uh, 5, you're protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter's saying, you have a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I have a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We are together going to be heirs of this thing that God has promised to us. And so Peter says, I'm an elder. I've seen Jesus. I'm a fellow heir of what Jesus is going to give to us. On that basis, listen to this admonition that I'm giving to you. And how does he admonish pastors or elders? Well, he admonishes them to serve in the proper manner. Real quickly before we get to that. In Matthew 18 and in Luke 22, what are the disciples doing? They're arguing about who's the greatest. Who was probably at the center of that discussion? Peter was for sure in the middle of that, right? Now, whether he started it, we don't know. But they were arguing about who's the greatest. And Jesus rebukes them and gives them an example of service. And so when Peter says, serve in the proper manner, he's speaking out of having been brought to a realization that it's not about who's the greatest. It's about serving Jesus well. So what does that look like? He says, first of all, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily. So he says, shepherd. 
there is a watching, there is a caretaking, there is an overseeing. So someone who wants to lead a particular church, there's responsibility attached to it. It's not just uh, preaching is good and important, but if I have no idea what's going on in your lives, there's a big part of what I'm supposed to be doing that I'm missing out on. Because there are one-on-one conversations and conversations in small groups and, and showing up when someone's in the hospital and things like that that are part of the shepherding and the oversight and the being involved in people's lives. It's a whole lot more than just me standing up on a Sunday morning and saying things to you. And I know I have room to grow in that area, but Peter is saying there's an oversight and a responsibility. But what characterizes that? Supposed to do it willingly. It says, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to God, according to the will of God. That idea of under compulsion is no one is forcing you to do it. You don't see it as a drudgery. You don't see it as a uh, something that you have to do. It is quite easy because of the selfishness of our hearts to see good things that God has called us to do as it's got to do it, I guess. That's not the attitude that's supposed to characterize somebody that's leading God's people. It's supposed to be done intentionally. That word voluntarily is also tied into an idea of intention. Like, you have chosen to do this, and you're doing it purposefully, and you're doing it in the way that God wants you to do it. So you're not doing it, and this was something I think that I had to work through when I was younger. I wanted to be a pastor when I was probably Braden Maggie's age because my grandpa was a pastor. Maybe you have wanted to do some particular thing in the church because somebody that you looked up to and respected did that thing before you. Play the piano, sing in special music. Um, teach a Sunday school class, be a deacon, serve in ladies' ministry, whatever it is, maybe there's been a degree to which you've wanted to do that particular ministry because someone else wanted you to do it. I think that there was a window of my life where I had a sense that I should be a pastor because my grandma thought it would be a good idea. And there's nothing wrong with family members encouraging you to do something they think you would do well. But if you are doing something for God, going back to what we talked about in chapter 4, where it says, as each one has received a gift, serve as a steward of the grace of God. If you serve in the church because someone else has sort of put this burden on you, like you ought to do this, you'd be good at this, you're going to come to a point of difficulty and you're going to have a really hard time justifying to continue doing it if it's just somebody else's thing that they've said you should do. You have to be convinced that this is what God wants you to do and you need to do it willingly and you need to do it faithfully because it's what God's called you to do. He says as well that elders are supposed to shepherd eagerly, not greedily. Here's a fascinating thing. Ambition is not bad, but it's often selfish. And fervency is not bad, but it can quickly be corrupted. Uh, You might have someone who wants to do better at their job and get a promotion, 
and that can quickly turn to a kind of greed that is just selfish and, and ignores everybody else and says, I will succeed no matter what. Or, and Peter, I think, is probably has this in mind as well, perhaps even more, is this idea of, in the New Testament, we see false teachers. And one of the common uh, marks of a false teacher is that they're after your money. So if, for example, you have someone who says, hey, I can make your life better and get you a blessing from God. I will gladly pray for you. Send me 50 bucks. That's a mark of a false teacher. If somebody says, hey, you know, I, I'm going to do this thing for you, and I'm going to help you out, but what's in it for me? That's not the attitude that God wants those who are leading his people to have. You're not in it for sordid gain. Now, I think it's easy sometimes to look at this and say that there should be no desire whatsoever for gain. But Paul and others made it clear that there is a reasonable expectation of reward for labor, right? So there's places where it says those who work hard are worthy of honor. Some people argue that that passage is talking about monetary honor, and that's hard to say 100%. But there are other passages where Paul says, hey, church at Corinth, I could have asked you to support me because I was ministering on your behalf and doing all these things for you. But I didn't because I didn't want to confuse the gospel. So the issue wasn't, he didn't have any right to it. The issue was, he said, I don't want there to be any question about my motives. And so what's going on here is, Peter, I think, is not saying there's never a place for somebody who's serving in ministry to be supported by those he's ministering to. But what he is saying, I think, is this. If your goal is to get rich off the people that you're ministering to, that's a wrong attitude. If, you're, if that becomes your driving goal, you need to examine your heart and see whether you're a false teacher and whether you even care about preaching what God has said at all. And so there is an eagerness that doesn't turn to greed and selfishness and chasing after what you can get from people. It's an eagerness that says, what can I do for them on God's behalf? What can God do in their lives? What can He accomplish? So not like a, a passive, well, you know, I'll just kind of do the stuff I'm supposed to do every week, and if something good happens, great, but I don't really expect it. That's not the attitude that we're supposed to have either. And so there's this biblical balance that's not greed and selfishness, but it's not being passive and just sort of ho-hum about what is the point of all this. He says also this idea of providing an example. Don't lord it over those allotted to your charge, but be an example of the flock. Uh, we see this as being a characteristic of what um, pastors and elders are supposed to be. Uh, it talks about it in Titus chapter 2, verse 7. It says, In all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine and dignified. So, one of the really basic and perhaps most important characteristics of someone who's supposed to lead God's people is what is that person actually like? We tend to, and it's been easy, I think, in American society to disconnect um, academic credentials from personal credentials. In other words, 
if you have the right certification or the right degree or the right recognition by somebody, there's not enough concern about what is that person like as a person. In 1 Timothy 3, when it lays out the qualifications for a pastor and elder, it doesn't really talk at all about what do you know. It talks about what do you want to do, the eagerness, and it talks about who you are as a person, the character. When I was trying to find a place to be a pastor during the course of once I got done with seminary and all those sorts of things, um, it was interesting to me how many churches wanted to know what do you think about this theological idea? And unfortunately, a lot of them didn't seem to be as concerned about who are you as a person. They didn't ask questions like, what does your walk with God look like? And what do the people that know you think you are? And all of those sorts of things. They asked questions like, this thing that people argue about in the church, what about it? Here's the danger of that. If our questions about those who are going to lead us in ministry are only about the things that they know, you can have people that know a whole lot of things and don't really love God. And quite honestly, I can say that with confidence because I think there's been moments in my life where I've walked that way. I knew a lot of things about God, but I didn't have a lot of passion in my heart to know God and for other people to know God. You can know all the Bible verses that there are in the Bible. You can do all the things there are to do in connection with the church and family and even outside of all those things. But if you don't actually have right character before God, all the knowing and all of the doing the right things doesn't matter. And so, Peter says, you need to provide an example to the flock. Not... This idea of lording it over those allotted to your charge, I think, is going back to something Jesus said in uh, Matthew chapter 20. Again, there's this sort of attitude that the disciples had about who's in charge, who's the greatest, all those sorts of things, who's going to be most important. And Jesus said this in Matthew 20. He said, to J- after James and John said, hey, can we be in charge? He said, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It's not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's not about whether you get to have the best seat in the house and be most recognized by people, Jesus says to the disciples. It's about, are you faithfully serving God? Provide an example. Don't say, I have this position, so listen to me. Say, I'm serving you under Jesus. Look at him. We're supposed to do all of this for God's approval. We see this in verse 4. When the chief shepherd appears. It's a really important phrase. When the chief shepherd appears. It is easy for, like I said a few minutes ago, either to feel that you're alone and so to get discouraged, or to feel that a church is yours and you can do whatever you want with it. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's Jesus' church. And so 
He's the one that's going to evaluate what it is that we're doing. He's the one that we should be concerned about. He's the one that we are serving under. And what is the result of proper service? You will receive the unfading crown of glory. So Jesus gives a lasting crown or reward when he appears. And so those who are serving him ought not settle for lesser things now. It's really easy to say, as a pastor, I want to preach a sermon in a way that people say, wow, that was a great sermon. I want to show up for people in a way that people say, wow, he really cares about me. It's not supposed to be about me. And to the extent that it is about me and I get recognition for things that maybe are good things that I'm doing the right way, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you have your reward now. Don't worry about any reward in heaven. Why this teaching to elders? Why am I talking to you about instructions that seem to just be for me? What are you supposed to do with it as a church member? Well, at the, uh, at the end of verse 3, it says, proving to be examples to the flock. What's the point of having an example? So you would follow after it. So to the extent that God is calling pastors, elders, whatever word we want to use, to be examples for God's people, God is calling God's people to follow those examples and to be similarly serving in a proper manner. So, when you serve, do you serve willingly or because you feel like you have to? When you serve, do you do it because of what you can get from other people or with eagerness because it's pleasing to God? When you have a position of leadership in some way, or you're recognized in some way, do you see that as a platform to say, I'm in charge of you, or do you see it as an opportunity to be an example for people and say, I'm under Jesus, I'm trying to follow him as best I can, so you follow me to the extent that I'm following him. The other reason I think that this is important for us to look at these first few verses, even though they're addressed to elders, is I will not always be the pastor of this church. And some of you will not always be in this church. And I don't say that because I have any plans to go anywhere. I'm just saying, whether by age or circumstance of something happening in my life or something happening in your life, one of you ends up in another church. Uh, for some reason, you end up needing a new pastor here. What are you supposed to be looking for in the person that's going to do that job for you? This sort of character that's laid out here in 1 Peter 5. This attitude that says, I'm not the authority, I am under authority. Elders ought to be held to these expectations. If I'm not doing these things, you should talk to me about it. And these are the criteria that, that are held out as what God's looking for in those who would lead in his church. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't say, okay, elders, now everybody else, go do whatever. We've already talked to the elders. He says, believers walk in humility. I think we could say this as in every relationship, be humble. Verse 5, younger men, be subject to your elders. Why do you think that he says, young men, be subject to your elders? Probably one of the biggest struggles when you're young is seeing the point of following after people who are, the, the, who are older than you. 
Why? Because we think we already know it. Why do I need to listen to you? I already know the things that you're telling me. Why are you saying them again? And it's hard for us to see that we're not doing them perfectly yet. And so when a parent or a teacher or some person who is in authority over us says, hey, here's what I want you to do and improve in some way, it's really easy to have the response to say, I'm already doing it the right way. I don't need to listen to you. I'm not going to follow you. Peter doesn't want that attitude in the church or in life, and so he says, young men, submit to your elders. But it's not just about young men, because some people, uh, I think it's really easy to say, oh, well, you know, if we just fix them, then everything's good. But he says, all of you, not just young men, but all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. So each person is supposed to behave humbly toward another person in the church. Why? Because this was the attitude of Jesus. I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. So if you follow after me, and if you belong to me, then when you come to other people around you, your goal is not to show up and say, Hey, what are you going to do for me? Your goal should be to say, How can I, on Jesus' behalf, serve you and help you and minister to you how can I recognize that I'm a sinner and so there's times when I'm not going to do something right and I'm going to have to ask forgiveness. There's times when I don't know it all and I'm going to have to ask for help from somebody who's been in a situation with parenting or with caring for a loved one or whatever else and, and have an attitude of humility that I don't know it all, I'm not always going to do it right, you're not here to serve me, all of those sorts of things Everyone in the church is supposed to behave humbly toward every other person, right? And then in uh, verse 6, it says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. So it's not just young men submit to elders, everyone be humble toward one another, but it's all of us collectively not show humility just to each other, but under God, be humble. Recognize that there is no place for pride in our walk with God because apart from Him, we would be lost without hope. He has given us everything that is good in our lives, and so we should come humbly before Him. Uh, Paul says, I think, in 1 Corinthians, what do you have that you haven't received? And if you got it from God, why do you act like it's your own doing? We've got to be humble before God and before one another. He gives the reasons for this in the second half of each of these two verses, verse 5 and verse 6. The first thing he says is, God gives grace to the humble, he's opposed to the proud. Why should you have humility in the context of the church and in the context of life? Because God is opposed to the proud. So if you are proud, what can you be certain of? In that thing, God is your enemy. God is opposed to you. You say, but I'm a Christian. It doesn't say anything about Christian or not Christian. It says if you're proud, God is opposed to it. And so, why should we care about behaving humbly toward one another? Because who wants to be God's enemy? That's the old way of life. That is something that is a really dangerous position to be in. We need to recognize God is opposed to the proud, but
but gives grace to the humble. Why doesn't God give grace to the proud? Because the proud don't think they need it. But the humble realize they desperately do. couple more things. God exalts the humble. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. It would be easy, I think, for us to look at this as a strategy, right? I'm going to behave in a humble way because I want to be in charge of everybody else. That's not really a humble attitude. It is, if I humble myself under God and under other people, I don't have to worry about whether or not it gets recognized, because as it says at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, 58, don't be um, worrying about that your labor is forgotten because God doesn't forget your labor that you've done on his behalf. In due time, you and I will have the benefits of our humble service for God. And it may not look exactly like what we expect. It may not look like you end up being the CEO and having millions of dollars. It may not look like you end up pastoring a church of 5,000 people. It may not look like you end up having every last dream in your life fulfilled simply because you've humbly served God, but God does not forget your humble service and God will exalt and honor you for it in the proper time and in the proper way. How do we know that? Look at the example of Jesus. He humbled himself, took on the form of flesh, was made in the likeness of men, went to the cross, and God has highly exalted him. So how do we know that this verse is true? Because it was true for Jesus. We're following after Jesus. It will be true for us as well. And that exaltation is not above Jesus, but it is alongside him as his fellow heirs, as sons of God. One more thing, reason to be humble. It says, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. What we like to do is take this verse and be like, give God all your problems and he'll look after you. But what did it say right before that? Right before that, it said, humble yourselves. It's not, I'm proud, I can handle all my things. Oops, no, I can't. God, fix it for me. It's, God, I need you. Will you help me? God says yes. Be humble because God loves the humble. He cares for them. So next time you say, I am really anxious, I am really overwhelmed, I'm having all these things that I need help with, the first step is, have you humbled yourself before God? And the next step is asking for his help. Because if you come to him in pride, he's not going to be inclined to say yes to helping you. So believers, walk in humility. Young men under elders, under God, all of you humble toward one another, God over all. This prepares you for spiritual battle. If elders are behaving selfishly, they're not ready to face Satan's attacks. In fact, they're giving in to them. If the church is not behaving humbly, that pride will be their undoing. They're not ready to face Satan. But when elders are serving with humility, following the pattern of Jesus, and all of us are walking in humility toward one another, then together we are strong to repel the attacks of the devil against God's people. All together resist the devil. You need to be ready for his attacks. He's your enemy. Think about in Pilgrim's Progress this idea of Apollyon, this sort of monster with wings and fire and arrows and whatever that comes after Pilgrim to attack him and destroy him. 
Sometimes people have the idea uh, that Satan's just sort of this being who wants people to have a good time. And yeah, he's kind of like the bad boy, he gets people in trouble, but really he just wants you to enjoy life. Bible doesn't paint that picture at all for us. Satan is your enemy. He wants to accuse you. He wants to lie about you. He wants to destroy you. He wants to see your soul burn in hell. There can be no negotiation with an enemy like that. Going back to the illustration of Pilgrim's Progress, there's this moment where Pilgrim encounters Satan and basically says, Hey, come back to me and I will give you whatever you want. We can't entertain what Satan offers to us even for a moment because he doesn't offer it genuinely. He's not the one who has ultimate power and he's the one who wants to constantly destroy us. And the the tricky thing about that is we face temptation and it sounds like something we really want. Hey, if you do this, you'll have pleasure. If you do this, you'll have fame. If you do this, you'll have wealth. If you do this, life will be good. But then there's the hook. Here's the bait. Here's the hook. Death forever apart from God. What good is it if you have everything that this world has to offer for 20 years, 30 years, 60 years, and then you die. And then you're apart from God forever. Not every life experiences suffering your whole life long, but if you did, how much better to walk with God and face suffering for 50 years than to walk with Satan, have pleasure for 50 years, and have misery for the rest of eternity. Satan's your enemy. Satan is dangerous. We were watching a nature documentary yesterday, and there were some lions in it. And uh, there were, um, these lions were going after, like, wildebeests and hippos and all sorts of things, right? There was one lion, and it had a bunch of hyenas surrounding him. And it looked kind of iffy where the hyena is going to take him down. And then another lion showed up and the hyenas all ran away. But for you and I, we're not a pack of 30 hyenas, right? If you and I encounter a lion, would you be like, oh, look at the nice cat. Let's go pet it. That'd be stupid, right? Lions are dangerous. And so when it describes Satan as a roaring lion prowling about... He's not walking around looking at the scenery. When a lion is prowling around, what's it doing? It's looking for something to kill and eat. And so when Satan approaches and some temptation shows up, even though it might look like not a big deal at first, You and I should have the attitude of the wildebeest like, I'm out of the herd, and I'm all alone, and I'm about to get taken down. This is, I think, really important in context of this passage. We'll get to this more when we get to verse 9. 
we want to take verse 8, like, just for me, right? I watch out. Satan's attacking me. What's the context of what Peter is saying? He's giving instructions collectively to the church, so he's probably not giving this one just to individuals either. Which means, you and I stand over here by ourselves, and everybody else is over there. Are we more or less safe standing over here by ourselves? Way less safe, right? Just like the elk or the wildebeest or the whatever, the lion wants to split the herd, single someone out, and attack that one, right? And take it down. It is hard sometimes to admit that we need help to connect with other people around us, to be open and honest about the struggles that we're having, but we need that help from each other. We need that admonition to, as it says, be of sober spirit and be on the alert. I think we need to be sober in prayer and alert against temptation. We see this from chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Keep fervent in your love for one another. When there are things that interrupt our fervent love for one another, when we're not spending time in prayer individually and collectively, we are more vulnerable to Satan's attacks. We're not going to be able to resist him successfully on our own. But with God's help and the help of one another, we can stand strong against Satan. Again, going back to that imagery, if you have a herd of 300 of something versus one lion, the lion is not so much a threat. You have one off by itself versus the lion, that one's in trouble. Don't be the one standing over there by yourself. With God's help, be ready, watch out, recognize he's a dangerous enemy, and ask for God's help and the help of those around you. And then say no to the devil. We see this in verse 9. Resist him firm in your faith. It would be easy to get to the moment of being prepared. You say, I've prayed about it. I've been uh, seeking help from fellow believers about this thing. I know that God is on my side. And then you come to the moment of temptation. You're like, yes, I'm going to do the thing you want me to do, Satan. So we can't do the preparation. We can't do all the right things leading up to that moment and then cave in the moment of temptation. We have to resist. On what basis? Firm in faith. Faith in God, the knowledge that God can help you, the knowledge that God can deliver you. As we'll see a little bit later, the knowledge that God is greater than him. What's the basis of this? Peter says, knowing the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So what's the really specific temptation that Peter is talking about that he says, be ready for Satan to attack you? It is the idea that if you face persecution, you are all alone. It's not worth following God. You need to give up and then you can be delivered in that way. And Peter says, recognize you are not alone. There are other people who are facing Satan attacks, Satan's attacks throughout the world, and God is helping them, and God will help you too, so don't give in. We talked about this last Sunday, this idea of those who suffer and face persecution in our world today. If Peter reminds them that they are not alone, then I think there's a case to be made 
that if we have opportunity to remind people who are suffering persecution that they are not alone, that we're praying for them, that God will uphold them, we should take the opportunity to do that. Practically, that might seem difficult. You say, well, if I talk to them, it's going to make things worse for them, all of that sort of thing. At the very least, we should be eagerly praying for them, but we should also be seeking opportunities to encourage those who are facing persecution with Peter's encouragement that you are not alone, God will help you overcome. You need to take hope that God will deliver you soon. Verse 10, it says, after you've suffered for a little while. Now, to be fair, Peter's going to say in 2 Peter uh, that a little while from our perspective is not necessarily a little while from God's perspective, but compared to the scope of eternity, it is still a very little while. He says, after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who calls you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He sort of piles on these words to say he's going to finish the work that he's doing. He's going to vindicate you that your faith is real. He's going to make you strong. He's going to secure your foundation. You don't have to give up because God's going to deliver you. And then the last thing here in verse 11. Remember that our God reigns and he has won. God has the victory. God is the ruler. Satan is described in the Bible as the God of this world, but he has a temporary throne. When Jesus died on the cross, that was the beginning of the countdown for the end of Satan's rule. And even though Satan has dominion over this world for this brief period of time, he is constrained by the boundaries that God's established for him. Think about Job. Satan had to come and ask permission to do anything toward Job, and God said, here's the boundaries. You can do that, but you can't step outside of it. You can't kill him. You can't do this to him. Satan is a powerful enemy, a dangerous enemy, one that we shouldn't take lightly, one that we shouldn't sort of have this flippant attitude of, I'm going to rebuke the devil and he's going to go away and it's all about me by myself with this sort of cocky attitude. That's not what we're talking about, but we do need to remember God is greater, God is overall, God has defeated Satan, and as it says in another verse, God will soon crush Satan under your feet. Not because we're so great, but because Jesus is one and we're part of his family. So when elders shepherd well and church members live in humility toward God and each other, the church is strong and united. We're able to resist the attacks of the devil during this brief period of suffering before glory is revealed. So Peter admonishes us to serve humbly under authority while resisting the devil. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as these things would admonish me to be faithful to the tasks you've given me, that I would do that well. Then in the moments when I need to be admonished or challenged, that you would give grace to those here in this church family to do that for me and to me. As we uh, interact with one another in the church, Help us to have an attitude and a, just a demonstration of humility toward each other. And then help all of us individually, but especially together, to 
resist the schemes of Satan, knowing that his time is limited, and so he is diligent in his attempts to undo your plan in this world. So he is dangerous and we should not take him lightly. But his defeat is sure and our victory is certain when we are on your side, upheld by your hand, standing strong and faithful with your people. Lord, help us to serve you well under the authority that you have established, having victory because this is what you've called us to as your people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.